a reading from Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, to make sacrifices for all time. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. So every time I preach from Jeremiah, I have to remind myself of all the stuff that happened in Jeremiah. Uh, all the stuff that was happening in Israel during the lifetime of Jeremiah, because it's a lot, and it's, it's like a, a really complicated plot to a movie that the first time you watched it, you were like, what happened? And so sometimes you have to watch it a second. Or, I'm on my 10th or 15th time through Jeremiah, and I again was like, oh yeah, then that happened. So I'm assuming maybe you need a reminder too. So, okay, Jeremiah is a prophet. Remember, a biblical prophet is not someone who tells the future. A prophet is a person who is the mouthpiece of God. And like God oftentimes says, things can be hard but true to hear. Usually a prophet says things that most people either don't want to hear or find themselves really resistant to listening to. Prophets have a reputation for going against the grain, marching to the beat of their own drum, you could say, but really they're marching to the beat of God's drum. So they're known for afflicting the comfortable people with woes and warnings, and they're known for comforting the afflicted people with words of hope amidst obvious despair. In both circumstances, people look at a prophet like they're crazy. Like that's pretty much universally how, how they're received. But that's the burden of a prophet. So here's the thumbnail sketch of what's happening to the people of Israel while Jeremiah is God's mouthpiece. Our Lutheran study Bible says throughout most of his life, much throughout most of Jeremiah's life, much of the Middle East was at war. This included Egypt, who at the beginning of this era has control over little old Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital, where the Israelites live. So Egypt, Syria, Assyria, in case we weren't confused yet. So you get Syria and Assyria. And then Babylon, that's the fourth. These are the big boys uh, on the block duking it out. And little countries like Israel and Judah, they're basically caught in the crossfire. So last week on Wednesday, I preached about the reforms uh, of King Josiah, a faithful to God king, which unfortunately is so rare, it's notable. So if you were here, you might remember Josiah was eight when he became king. Josiah dies when Egypt's pharaoh, that's Egypt's word for king, Egypt's pharaoh, Necho II, came north from Egypt to help the Assyrians fight against the Babylonians. So much like in our own world, there would be uh, alliances made to team up against the, the biggest bully in the world. Well, that was happening then too. 
And so Egypt and Assyria teamed up against Babylon. Okay? So the Pharaoh, after killing Josiah, king, makes Josiah's son, let's call him son number one, because there's going to be more. Uh, let's go, so son number one is made king after Egypt's king kills Josiah. Son number one makes it three months as king before Pharaoh sends him to Egypt so that the Egyptian king can try another son of Josiah. We'll call him son number two. And it's a while that son number two is king. Well, let's be honest. The Pharaoh is the greatest power. He just allows the Israelites to have their own king, right? But it's while son number two is king that Egypt and Assyria, remember they had teamed up against Babylon? Well, it's while son number two is king that Egypt and Assyria lose the war. So now instead of the Pharaoh installing and deposing kings, the Babylonian king, we'll call him King Nebi. That's short for his name that I don't care to have to remember to say. So King Nebi, he gets, he gets to say now, who has power to be king in Israel? Okay, so King Nebi says, son number two, you're out. Your son, though, is in. Son of son number two. See why I get confused about this? And this lasts for just a few months until King Nebi forces him, the son of son number two, to leave, leave Judah, along with lots of leading citizens of Jerusalem, and they all together live in exile in Babylon's capital city for an amount of time that no one could know how long that was going to be. Okay, so after the son of son number two gets exiled, King Nebi names Mataniah king. I should call him Matty. Who happened to be Josiah's son number three. So King Nebi gave him a new name, and it wasn't Maddie. It was Zedekiah. How would you like to be this guy, by the way? The Egyptians killed your dad, Josiah. They then sent your eldest brother to Egypt after installing and then deposing him as king. Your other brother, also king, didn't last. His son, your nephew, was made king, but then got exiled to Babylon. Now it's your turn to be the king, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is king for 10 years. Well, good job for him, right? When he leads a rebellion against King Nebi. And you know what King Nebi does in response? He shows Zedekiah, son number three, who's really boss. King Nebi destroys Jerusalem in 587 B.C., he destroys the temple, and he sends way more people into exile back in Babylon than he did the first time. In those 10 years that Zedekiah was king, the people of Jerusalem were experiencing a political crisis. They were experiencing an existential crisis, and more deeply, at the end of it, they then experienced a complete crisis of faith. I think we can resonate 
with this, if we could imagine, like in 2023, imagine how we might feel if the bedrocks of our society were in trouble. Like, what if democracy itself was threatened? What if institutions that we used to take for granted seemed to be turning upside down? If we if what we thought was true about our place in the vision of God was actually incorrect, if that's the kind of stuff that was happening, that's what's happening in this world. King Nebi had destroyed the kingly succession that God promised to David 400 years earlier, a promise that was like in their Bible. Like the King David had received promises. God said, your house, David, Your royal dynasty will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Not for 400 years, forever. I think that's a lot like how Americans feel about our own independence, democracy in general. But then between the Pharaoh and King Nebi, they depose and install whoever they choose as king whenever they feel like it, these foreign powers. And it causes the Israelites to be like, well, what? How can they have any power here? And so they question, where is God in all this? It's a crisis of faith. Oh, and the temple, where the Lord literally resides in the Israelites' imagination, it gets destroyed. For some, that this happens makes them again question Well, then where is God in all this? How can this God have any power if a foreign power can come in and destroy his house? That doesn't make sense. There was this belief that Jerusalem was invincible. But maybe God wasn't really that strong. Maybe God wasn't faithful to God's promises. Maybe their God was just weak. So that's the situation. Layer upon layer of disaster and uncertainty. The worst had happened and then kept getting worse for years. This isn't just a moment that they're on, then like, oh, let's take a breath. It's all going to get better. It just keeps happening for years and years and years. These were not just bad days or hard times. These were the kinds of times when everyone, in addition to losing family and friends to exile, In addition to being more poor and powerless than they'd ever been in their memory, they were all questioning the truth of their God. Like there was no escaping the hopelessness. It was all the time about everything. They were questioning their identities, their beliefs, the point of life. They could not know how to move forward as there was all kinds of evidence all around them that said they were alone. They were truly, completely defeated. I just can't overstate how desperately hopeless the people were when Jeremiah speaks as God's mouthpiece. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it's a waste without human beings or animals, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without inhabitants, human or animal, there shall once more be heard the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of the hosts, to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, 
His steadfast love endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I'll fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. How would you react to this guy? <laughs> like, dude, your king seems powerless, like many kings in a row. The temple is destroyed. Your own leaders and lots of people you know have been removed to some other place altogether. You and your whole culture are in this existential political and religious crisis, and this guy's walking around saying, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I'll fulfill the promise I made. Like, do you see what we're all seeing? There shall once more be heard the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the sounds that come along with weddings, you know, when people are really happy. Right. You keep on hearing what you're hearing, Jeremiah. Here's the second thing. Not just how would you react to this guy. Could you be this guy? Singing these things publicly? Like out loud? <laughs> it's one thing to believe in God despite what you see around you, despite what you all are experiencing, to believe that even when the worst has come to pass, worse than the worst actually, to still believe that God is in control, that God will restore and renew all that's been taken away and broken, to believe that the greatest empires will come to an end, that the mightiest powers of this world, they're going to be reversed, and that when they are, God will be the one still standing. God will be the one still loving. It's one thing to believe in that kind of thing, stuff for which there is no evidence. It's another to say those kinds of things out loud, <laughs> right? In public, for neighbors and strangers to hear. Imagine the looks that Jeremiah got. Imagine being a friend or family member of Jeremiah. Could you be so bold? Money will one day mean nothing. All the skin colors in the world, all the languages, all the nations will one day be valued equally and live in harmony. The college football playoff will one day make sense. That last one may not fit with the other two, but it's that kind of thing that Jeremiah is saying, like, how could you possibly say that? Hoping in the face of despair. Well, here's the kicker. At your baptism, at any baptism, the last part of what we say is happening in that moment. It says, we do this baptism so that this person may learn to trust God, which means all the time, even in the worse than the worst times. Worse kinds of times than any of us have ever experienced, by the way. And those kinds of times really could be right around the corner. We don't know. And at our baptism, we're called to trust God anyway. Proclaim Christ through word and deed. 
Care for others in the world God made and work for justice and peace. We are called right away in our baptism to hope in the face of despair and to be Jeremiah in this world. Proclaiming in word and deed that God is in control, that God will renew and restore all that has broken or fall apart, that God will outlast all the empires and powers of this world. We do not believe in the foreverness of any worldly empire, not even the one we live in. Jesus' followers believe God's going to be the only one standing, the one still loving after everything else has done its worst to hold on to power by killing and hating and dividing. Oftentimes, it really doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence, maybe any evidence, that God is present. And yet in faith, the church, like the church on earth, but we in particular, this congregation is called to claim that there is more than what can only be seen. That this is not all there is. That what is true, everlasting, and real is worthy of our trust and our whole lives. The good news for us tonight because if I had to leave this room thinking I had to go be Jeremiah, I'd be like, oh, okay. Well, the good news for us tonight, as we remember that we're called to be Jeremiah in this world, is that no one of us has to do that work alone. Yay. We get to proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and truly present among us together in community. We get to be Jeremiah. Thanks be to God. Amen.